0: Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Welcome to the microbial bioinformatics podcast. Lee and Nabil are your co-hosts today. We're navigating the twisted world of bacterial taxonomy. We have some excellent guides to help us. Our guests today are Dr. Layden Pritchard, who is a Strathclyde Chancellor's Fellow at Strathclyde Institute of Pharmacy and Biomedical Sciences at the University of Strathclyde, and Dr. Connor Meehan. Dr. Connor Meehan is an assistant professor in molecular microbiology at the University of Bradford. He specializes in whole genome sequencing and molecular epidemiology of pathogens, primarily mycobacterium tuberculosis and genome-based bacterial taxonomy. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having us. Yes.
1: Yeah, so
2: usually when we have uh new guests <laughs> on the show, we ask, we ask a, you know, an easy question, like,
3: what do you normally do for your work? And so Leighton, what, what is it for you? So- Other than administration, which is pretty normal in academia, I, I do quite a wide range of computational biology. For the last 10, 15 years or so, it's mostly been microbial genomics. Prior to being at Strathclyde, I was at the James Hutton Institute just outside Dundee, where I worked on plant pathogens and human pathogens, which were associated with plants, so E. coli and salad greens, that kind of thing. Uh, so there's been a lot of assembly annotation, transcriptomics, and diagnostics and that kind of thing. And that's really the diagnostic sort of things for legislation is where the interest in taxonomy came from and the need to get involved in taxonomy. And it's why pioneering which is possible, you know, flagged people up the time I was working in this area. It's That's why that was written. But I'm also interested in molecular level and systems-level interactions. So I was interested in how pathogens interact with plants. And that now at Strathclyde, because I've moved more towards biomedical and industrial biotechnology, that's moved towards more medical relevant pathogens in terms of environmental bacteria. And that's moved towards streptomyces. And I've even started working a little bit on human biology, looking at cardiomyocyte response to, tra- to stress with metabolic modeling. Excellent. And Conor, we haven't had you on for
2: a while.
1: Anything new with you? I guess I haven't talked much about the taxonomy side and where my background and interest is at the moment. So my first interest in taxonomy was I needed a project during my postdoc and we had these lacnospreciae that were found in the human gut and me and my boss Rob Biko at the time were like this is interesting let's look at these. So in a non-hypothesis driven way we did a data driven way and then found that there was environmental niche differences in it and The main taxonomy issue that was there was that things had been renamed so often that they were very difficult to find what was supposed to be in this genus and what wasn't. And now a lot of my work is on the mycobacteria, so coming from a clinical taxonomy point of view, what name should we use so that so that clinicians can very quickly assign some kind of treatment to it? When should we change that name so that it is more biologically correct? When should we leave it so that it doesn't confuse people? So it's a very applied taxonomy that I kind of come from. Let's start off with a the, with the difficult
2: one. So I wanted to ask both of you, I'm, I'm very confused when it comes to taxonomy,
1: and I
2: understand a species for. Higher organisms but what about a species for bacteria?
1: I would start off by saying you probably don't understand how to define a species in a multicellular either. I, the first time I ever came across taxonomy was a lecturer, Grace McCormick, in my University of Manuth, where I was there during my undergrad. We were first years and she split us into groups, group and she said, come up with a species concept that covers everything including bacteria and viruses. And we thought this would be easy. And now here I am 20 years later or whatever, and we still don't have one. In multicellular, it tends to be about reproduction and whether offspring are then viable for further reproduction. And that's a very generally sweeping statement that does not involve any plants.
3: I think across prokaryotes and multicellular organisms, the sort of abstract principle I fall back to is that there's some kind of recognizable, if not barrier to gene flow, at least some kind of discontinuity where it's not just a case where two organisms can exchange genetic material easily and have that progress into the next generation. And that's going to be defined differently for prokaryotes than it is for multicellular organisms just by, just because of what they are. And, and how they interact with each other to re- reproduce. As, as my background comes from looking primarily at genome sequences, I'm really only looking at the genetic material. and looking at the flow of that computationally. And I'm not really looking personally very often at the, the larger biological picture. So I always picture it in terms of some sort of disruption or discontinuity in the ability to exchange genetic material.
1: So. It- if you want to define a new species though and you actually want to do what people think most taxonomists do which probably is not even true it is still primarily biochemical you there will be a suite of biochemical tests and then you are saying this is the profile for this it can grow on this it does not grow on that it has this kind of colony it has these kind of morphologies this kind of mo- motility all of these things that still really is a base basis for defining a species and we're we're moving slowly away from that but you to have that strain it must be culturable it must be deposited in two different collections so there are the atcc and there are the other ones that are around there are the specialized ones for different species or organism groups and then genetically at the moment it's still based on 16s so to get a little bit into the the 16s side of it 16s has been around for 30 something 40 something years now and it was found by carl Woese and others that if you sequence if you use the sequence of this gene and you compared it you would approximately get species groups that we already knew so you have to remember that a lot of taxonomy is we defined these groups before and then we use this marker to pull back those groups so it was not done agnostically to create new groups and it was saying that. cutoff of the whole sequence similarity, if it's within 97% of each other, this was approximately equivalent to a 70% DNA-DNA hybridization in the lab, which was approximately equivalent to the biochemically and physically defined species. So it's Everything still came back to that original biochemical, physical way, but then we see these kind of groupings. And now what a lot of modern taxonomy is, is is that true? What does that mean? What do we do with that information? The
3: historical aspect's really important because what you described there, I think, as we knew that some organisms could be divided into species, and then we kind of almost retrofitted 16S back onto that to aid with a sort of quantitative classification. is kind of what we've done with genetics onto organisms, which we recognize as being distinct in historical terms. We knew that, say, cats and and dogs were distinct from species, but we didn't really understand the genetics until relatively recently. And we've always kind of followed this this historical trend, whether it's this categorization that we've, we've made as humans and labeling of things in the environment and around, or whether it's taking the biochemical and phenotypic taxonomy of microorganisms and then trying to retrofit our genomic analyses onto that to try and make them match up with what we considered to be species previously. So taking that sort of broader philosophical view, I think there's always been a sort of historical tendency to try and remain within what went before. And that's true for, say, binomial nomenclature as well, where the binomial nomenclature is a particularly good way of describing the way that bacteria mix their DNA and, and divide and pool off into distinct Reproducing groups, but it's how the Linnaeans evolved within culture, and we, we try to retrofit back to that.
0: I would definitely attend your lectures if I could. <laughs> <laughs> I ah. intend to go off
3: on a, on a philosophical uh, side
1: because I used to work for Ford Doolittle, and that's what we would talk a lot about: is oh. the philosophy of trees and how that tree then creates a nomenclature that is binomial, that then from that creates lineages, and what does it mean to be a lineage? Yeah, that was my Thursday afternoons. Tell me, sounds-
0: tell me a funny Ford Doolittle story. I
1: I, I only <laughs> okay. know about him by name. I will tell you a funny one, which is when I worked at Dalhousie University in Canada. I was funded on a CIHR grant, which was to look at microbiomes in 2010. And actually, we had a work package on defining what is the reproductive unit of a pro carrier and there is every answer and there is no answer to that but that was a a, an actual work package that we had we had philosophers that were built on that and ford was one of them as he moves more into the philosophical side that he does a lot of now and because ford is ford and we kind of you know he is fantastic at everything he would normally email us on a monday and be like pizza discussion thursday so i guess we 3 p.m had to be there to do that and it would be a discussion around certain topics in order to it. And we got there and my other boss, Joe Bolowski I was there who loved getting into it as well. We had a discussion on the concept of lineages. And the two of them were getting into quite a heated scientific argument about what it meant to be a lineage. And then I stopped them and was like, hang on, what do you define a lineage as? And Ford was saying that it was like A lineage in a family in terms of like a lineage is species, genus. These are the lineages that we're defining out, whereas Joe was defining a lineage as in going down, like I follow this lineage through my parents and my grandparents. And it was proper philosophical that they were arguing and they were not even talking about the same thing at all. But I learned quite a lot about how to, why taxonomy is there as a useful term, but it should not be the be all and end all. And then now, typically you have what is a lineage, which is actually now slightly becoming a terminology in taxonomy even though it's not properly defined but lineages we hear a lot about in terms of
2: people who want to make a clade sound more important than it is i think these days i think it's a good
1: way <laughs> of putting it so
0: one thing you said was we define species on on biochems and actually i thought it was based on dna dna hybridization but it's it's actually defined on that assay right
1: if, if you wish to put in a new species into the, the International Journal of Systemics and Evolutionary Microbiology, who publish these lists. So there, there is a list which comes out every, I think it's year, or maybe two or three times a year, I can't remember, that say these are the names of the species. And this is what it used to be called, or this is it, and this is its type sp- strain. And if you want to publish that, you have to do it in a very specific way. And if you can either publish it in IJSAM and then it automatically goes into the list because they do all the approvals to even get the paper done. Or you can publish it somewhere else. And if you have the right amend at the end and and it's been covered, they'll probably still put it into the list. Now, normally what that means for a species is that you have to show biochemically that it is different from other species that are nearby and that you use the 16S sequence in order to show that it is different from other species around us with the 16s now being the proxy for that dna dna hybridization nobody's doing dna dna hybridizations and putting all that work in we can just sequence the 16s so it's it's the classic biochemistry has to be there and normally some kind of phenotype that's going to define it and that strain that you have deposited is classically going to show that mixed with the 16s sequence which has worked as the proxy for that genetics thing. That's how yeah. it currently stands for defining this.
0: Okay,
3: okay. Yeah, so- more, more frequently these days, people who submit to IJSCM are providing genome sequences. So we we have moved as, as reviewers and, and editors to looking at ANI and digital DDH and not just 16S. But certainly if you don't have the genome sequence, 16S are so
2: similar. the question though, you need all of the other biochemical tests, and you need that full description, and then you have a, it's sort of like you have a choice one of be the genome ANI calculation or the 16S. And anything else you can possibly use, or the DNA hybridization, but no one does
1: it. So the the official regulations say that there should be a 16S tree, (laughs) but I would say the vast majority of the reviewers really would now look for a whole genome and an ANI calculation. So for those who don't know how the ANI works, it is the average nucleotide identity. You get all the bits of, of the two genomes you're comparing, and then you get the percentage of how much of the nucleotides inside there are shared. And if it's over 95%, that is equivalent approximately to the 16S cutoff of 97%, which is approximately equivalent to the 70% DNA-DNA hybridization. But ANI definitely works the best of the tools that we have at the moment for the species level. And I think even though it's not a requirement, it's definitely strongly, strongly, strongly recommended if you wanted to get in.
3: And there's a, whole, there's a whole lot of weeds in the calculation that we can dive into for how ANI is calculated by all the different methods you can calculate. It. But one
2: thing that follows on from this for me is based on what all you're saying and it sounds nice and specific but then this means that what do you do with metagenomic data and what do you do with genomes assemble from metagenomic data because you then cannot classify them or integrate them into any such classification scheme as much as people would want
1: to we are nodding profusely
3: yeah you certainly can't obtain a phenotypical biochemical distinction i mean this is all about sort of cohesion and exclusion so for things to be in the same species. They have to cohere. They have to share properties. And what we're typically asking for is that they are genomically similar, so 16S, DDDH yet distinct from other things which are not the same. So we're looking for some kind of a transit, so that can be 16S percentage identity difference. and difference. difference. For phenotypic and biochemical tests, we're looking for things within the species to have the same response to those tests and things that are not the same species to have a distinct response in a, at least one of those tests. You can't do all of those things for genomes that are obtained from mags and you, and you can't do it for unculturables either because you can't do any phenotypic work on them. But there are a couple of different approaches have been proposed but, but have been rejected by the ICSP, where it was suggested that we, we should take the route of allowing type material to include a genome sequence and not the organism itself in ATCC or some other collection. And that was rejected. So it's a formalism and a policy decision not to allow mags and you know, unculturables to participate in this larger scheme that comes described of so much into having an effective publication and being defined on the basis of both genome and biochemistry or phenotype. So how do you personally feel about, and this
2: is everybody, how do you personally feel about that? Is I think that, we're at a turning point
3: in taxonomic history and it will change eventually, even if not now.
1: Yeah, I would agree that the, the real clinching point for a lot of people is that we know categorically that a lot of the microbes that we work with are not culturable and never will be culturable by themselves. That's just not, in the worlds of microbiomes that we see now, it's just not possible for a lot of things. And that is going to then just exclude a lot of things from the taxonomy. Not be, We know that there are a lot of entire phyla that are out there, and they have been kind of given special status where they say, we know that this is here, but we're not gonna give it an official one, but we don't wanna seem like we're living in the past, that we know that it's there, but without that cultural, you can't have it. We're just like, that's not, I don't think ever going to be possible. So I think eventually the genome will become a type material. And there are efforts to have alternative taxonomies so what's also interesting about taxonomy is that there is there is one true taxonomy and also there are 50 taxonomies all of which are valid and this is where people get very confused if you change something in the official list that's what will get changed at ncbi that's where people think of when they think of of taxonomy they go to ncbi they've got their number mycobacterium tuberculosis 1773 i can tell you that's his number i look at it so much you put that in and it'll give you the taxonomy It'll tell you all the synonyms that it's been before, and it'll give you that whole tree of where it goes all the way back to the root. And that is essentially populates that NCBI list but once something is named except for very rare things that name never goes away so when they change the name from clostridium to whatever it was everyone will say you have to use this name but actually technically you can use whatever name has ever been validly published for that you you cannot force somebody to use a new name but in the reality is everyone wants to have one list and everyone wants to know what everyone's talking about so they all want to use the one list but if that list is not going to include things that are based on genomes only, people will start drifting off into other lists. For me, the point of taxonomy is so that I can say, I work on this and you understand exactly what that means. And I don't just have to like give you a genome accession number in NCBI. I can say I work on Mycobacterium tuberculosis and you have a general idea what that means. So it comes back to the philosophical thing of like, why have a taxonomy if everyone's not going to use one taxonomy?
0: Just two comments on that real quick. I remember 666 is Vibrio cholerae. And the okay. and the other one is at the at the bottom of NCBI's page. I do believe they give a disclaimer like this is not the official taxonomy. So I just wanted to hear a quick comment from you on that.
1: So I didn't know that it was taken straight from the society. You can't ask them to change things without that. So we found a mistake that there was a mycobacterium species that was in mycobacterium tuberculosis complex, where the paper specifically said that it is beside. So someone just put it in in the wrong place. Now, I don't know exactly how the background workings of it works. From my personal experience, what we had was the Mycobacterium genus from 2017 split into five different genera based on a whole host of things, AAI, ANI, and some other things that are not overly important. That paper came out. That person put put the proper amend records in. It went into the official list, and it was changed on NCBI straight away without and that was because it was a genus of several paper. It did not take much Nobody. Maybe they also went to NCBI and asked them to change it, but these changes happened very, very quickly into NCBI. And even though it's not the official taxonomy, people look at it as official taxonomy. If people say, what's the taxonomy, they go to NCBI and they look it up. That's the reality. Yeah.
3: And this, this comes back to some extent to the, the sort of constrained by history view of taxonomy in the sense of th- those old names that have been superseded still persist in the literature. And if you go back to look at the literature, they're still there. Sorry, you won't find that original reference if you search for the new name. So I've got a paper from 2003 where we sequenced an organism, and it's completely changed its genus now. But the original paper is still with the original genus assignment. And this touches as well on the difference between taxonomy and nomenclature, where if we want to look at taxonomy as a correct description of evolutionary history and how organisms radiated, that's one thing. And the labels we put on them is something different. The label doesn't say what it is. So when we've corrected names, such as in Lineage A over here, this was genus X, species X. In Lineage B over here, we said this was genus X, species X and we've renamed one of them both of those original identifiers will be in the historical record in the literature and will be in the databases but only one of them is in inverted commas true and if we treat those labels as the truth as opposed to the underlying data and what the organism actually is as the truth then we run the risk of greater confusion than we we already have in taxonomy we have the
1: same mycobacterium tuberculosis and mycobacterium bovis are exactly the same species. Um, they're just ecovars of each other, essentially. And then we have Mycobacterium africanum, which is two lineages which are not even together on the tree. They have the animal lineages in between. But when we work on Mycobacterium tuberculosis lineage 5, if we don't put in brackets Mycobacterium africanum afterwards, they'd be like, people won't know. And I'm like, it's just more confusing. The difficulty we have there is that then clinicians think, I need to treat this differently because it's not tuberculosis. I need to find out what treats Africanum. So we have all these like chimpanzee versions and the other ones. And then, so it's actually very confusing for vets who tend to be the ones who come, who find new species or, or, or find new lineages of existing species. They're like, oh, I have no idea how to treat this in this animal. And you're like, it's just TB. You treat it with mostly the regular things. There will be some differences between lineages, which we can get into, but sometimes naming can help and sometimes it can hurt. And then historically, you end up having to say, it used to be this, which used to be this, which used to be this, which used to be this so that everyone feels included.
3: I think that's a great example of that tension between science as a way of understanding and categorizing, classifying, and building from what we know about the world and science as a social activity where we need to explain to each other what it is we're we're talking about. And I think this comes back as well to the definition of species question you asked about. Are we talking about species in the sense of here's a label for an organism that we can both talk about and understand? Or are we talking about species in the sense of this is a sensible biological division between this group of organisms and this group of organisms. And I think we flit between the two of them sometimes in discussion. One of the classic examples for me is the
2: E. coli Shigella problem, where basically, and it's a specialized interaggregated E. coli, and it, it is embedded within the E. coli species. There is no doubt that it is not something else, but clinically, it's a different thing. Clinically, Shigella causes shigellosis. It's its, it's own separate Practically, it has to be treated kind of separately. And that's something, you know, we always make a joke like, ha ha ha, Shigella, you mean E. coli. it's like, yeah, but there is this sensitivity of like, what are we talking about?
1: That's always the best example because clinically you need to know straight away if it's Shigella because the way that you treat that is quite different to the way that you treat E. coli in terms of the se- severity and how quickly you kind of want to get to this so that's really really important clinically so it's about the end you know so your use case is clinician they don't care about the genome they care whether it's Shigella or E. coli and they don't they're not like well maybe it should be it's like how do I treat it do I treat it this way or do I treat it that way whereas like technically Salmonella and E. coli and Shigella are one species, but you would never do that because that doesn't help anybody to talk about their work and it doesn't help commissions. So it helps nobody by being facetious. So the example that, because I always come back to Mycobacteria, we went through the whole Mycobacterium genus and we reassigned some of the species into subspecies that had been separate before, but we have one which is Mycobacterium marinum, causes disease in fish, and ulcerans causes very bad ulceration of the skin in humans. Microactum ulcerans, when you do an ANI, because it only looks at the bits that are the same between two, which we'll get into later, these as being exactly the same species, but we said we should not call these two different things because if someone has a marinum infection, it'll go away eventually. If they have an ulcerans infection, could potentially die from that you need these labels to be important
3: i think the ecoline shigella example is a classic because it is such a clear and excellent example of that tension between the need to name things clearly for societal benefit and human activity and and the need to categorize and an overdue attention to nomenclature confuses the two and maybe we need parallel ways of identifying what yeah. organisms are. It was it was mentioned earlier, but I don't think specifically about other ways of classifying genomes than, than by nomenclature. And I thought you were going to mention uh, UNCODE or SET code, which is a proposed completely qualitative of the identity of organisms on the basis of their genomes. Maybe we do need to separate those things in order to clearly distinguish between the societal need for classification and our need to classify in terms of evolutionary history.
1: Because like, like my book bear will go in the opposite direction, despite me saying, coming as a clinical taxonomist, I'm like, it's important that we label things that are useful, but also it's like, I don't need you to publish 5 million papers that each define a new lineage because you don't understand the difference between a clade on a tree and a actually important definition that people need to think about. So there's definitely a, sometimes it's important that you say that something is new and then sometimes it's you're overreaching in terms of giving things an importance beyond what is really there. And you see this a lot more in virology because these things become separated very quickly. So they see lots of diversity and say, this is a new lineage, but it doesn't actually do anything different.
0: That's all the time we have for today. I wanna thank our guests, Dr. Layton Pritchard and Dr. Connor Meehan. We learned a ton about taxonomy. And so I think you earned your place for the show for next time. We'll go into more details. Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at MicroBinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.